here at Canada Land, we're asking for your help this holiday season. It has come to our attention that some of the olds are still unaware of the fine form of podcasting, and we need your help to fix that. If, over the holidays, you come to learn that any of your olds, be it a dad, a cousin, a capitalist who's been taught the spirit of socialism by three ghosts, doesn't know what a podcast is, you need to fix it. So here's what you need to do. Bind them to a chair, tape their ears open, and play them a podcast at full volume while screaming, It's like radio, but internet! Take a picture of that scene and tweet it to us. One of us will send you a video personally thanking you. Or we'll call the police, either or. But just make sure someone in your family understands the true meaning of podcasting this season and let us know about it. The downside is that it may be me sending you the thank you video. So <laughs> just FYI. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the most comfortable mattress you've never slept on. Endy offers a 100-night trial with free returns so that you can test your mattress in the comfort of your home instead of in some kind of big box showroom floor. If you don't absolutely love it, they come pick it up from you and give you a full refund, no questions asked. For $50 off any mattress, go to ND.ca and use the promo code OPPO. Socks, Jen! This episode is brought to you by Sock Club. The holiday season is here and Sock Club is delivering the perfect gift experience. Remind your loved ones that you care each month with quality American-made socks. The socks are sent straight to their door featuring different designs and a personal note every month that can be customized before each shipment. Go to SockClub.com slash CanadaLand and get 15% off with the discount code CanadaLand at checkout. From Canada Land, this is a very special holiday episode of Oppo. Justin, it's Christmas, if the PC police will permit me to say so. On this week's show, we get drunk on the Christmas spirit, which is a type of overproof brandy only sold in Quebec, and we throw our Christmas wishes into the roaring fire. And I do not promise that I will not sing. Welcome to da 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 the, the holiday, holiday episode. episode. <laughs> Oppo is supported in part by Endy, the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Endy is transparent about its sourcing materials, manufacturing, and design. Everything used to make the Endy mattress is sourced from within Canada. By keeping manufacturing local, Endy can avoid duties, currency exchanges, and international shipping, keeping prices as fair as possible for their Canadian customers. Endy's quality is second to none, and its pricing is even better. With a smaller price tag than its competitors, their mattresses cost anywhere between $675 and $950 Canadian. That means even the largest mattress, a California King, costs less than $1,000. You simply can't find that quality-to-price ratio anywhere else. I invite you to try. You can't. Andy bypasses traditional brick-and-mortar retail and focuses on seamless online shopping experience that's both simple and convenient. Go to Andy.ca and use the promo code OPPO for $50 off any Andy mattress. So, Justin, have you ever noticed the way that content in Canadian media seems to take a precipitous downward dive around the Christmas season? I have. Well, there's a reason for that. That's because when the holidays approach, dear audience, we in the media industry busily churn out what we like to refer to as filler. That's right, our panels and magazines are being filled with overlong content to paste over the gaps so that we can spend some time with our families. Here at Oppo, we are no exception. So rather than our usual, totally thoughtful, meaningful, well-researched <laughs> show, we decided to do something a little bit different. You get a list. You get a listicle. You get a listicle. <laughs> so That's right. We're okay. <laughs> 
That's right. Both Jen and I have prepared our wishes for the coming political new year, and neither of us have told the other what we want. So we're just going to churn through these wishes and have a good time doing it. My wish number five, Jen, uh, this is... um, this one's quite close to my heart. Uh, I wish that the prime minister would fire Jody Wilson-Raybould. You know what? I'm saying it. I think <laughs> the justice file has been completely bungled for the last three years and enough. I think at a certain point, you have to look at the problem at the top, and it's the minister's fault. I'm not saying she's a bad minister or a bad politician or bad at anything. I just think she sucks in this job. Give her something else to do. I think there's a thousand other jobs in government or foreign postings uh, or, you know, the Crown Corporation jobs or anywhere else in government uh, that Jody Wilson-Raybould could be better used at because evidently she's not very good at being justice minister. I'm sorry. The government was ordered to end solitary confinement, and it was given a year to do so. It has not done so in a year, and it's new legislation doesn't really end solitary confinement. That's a fucking problem. Their justice reform bill, not going to significantly change incarceration rates, especially when it comes to overrepresentation of indigenous people. They've been completely negligent in actually getting any sort of justice legislation before parliament in a timely manner. It has been a boondoggle. And I've said on the show before, I've heard from liberals in Ottawa who are just flabbergasted at how badly they've handled a file that should be a huge winner for them. They campaigned on a whole bunch of justice reform stuff and have been completely hamstrung in actually bringing them in. So I think it's time everybody, you know, one real sitting of parliament left. I think it's time to bring in a new minister and try to get some stuff done before the next election because it's your last kick at the can. And Jody Wilson-Raybould obviously has shown that she can't bring the football over the line. If I can mix up all my metaphors, I think it's time for somebody else. Wish accepted and undisputed. What's your number five, Jen? My number five is I would like new leaders for all of the parties. Now, this is a moonshot. (laughs) Jesus Christ. This is a moonshot. But I basically think all of these leaders, all of our political leaders right now represent the absolute worst instincts and impulses of the parties they represent. I think Justin comes across as sort of shallow and unprepared. I think How dare that- you? Oh, it's you mean the prime minister. Yeah, no, that's fine. All of the hope, promise, and optimism that Justin Trudeau came to office on in 2015 has turned to sour milk before him. I think that he, he embodies some of the worst most wokiest virtue signally impulses of the liberal government writ large. And I really wish that he would assert more of his sort of, I, I don't think the guy's stupid. I think he's actually pretty smart. And I think he's, he's a, a lot more to offer. And I think he's for the most part overshadowed by his top commanders. And I would like to actually see if, if, if there's a real Justin Trudeau in there, I would like to see him become more assertive or I would like to see somebody else be a prime minister. Andrew Shear is a walking milk carton. <laughs> I have nothing more to say. The NDP and the Green Party, I actually think, are the two parties that have the most room for growth in the next year or so. And uh, Jagmeet Singh has utterly failed to assert the NDP in any meaningful way. And I think there's a pretty good shot that he's going to go down in Burnaby South, in which case I don't know what the party is going to do. Yeah. So that that's just depressing to watch. And Elizabeth May, I mean, let's be perfectly frank. She's just been there too long. It's it's time oh, for some, yeah, it's time for some new blood in the Green Party. And, I, I and feel for Elizabeth May. Just to jump in, like, is you know, there's not a lot of other options, right? Like so many people in that party are either out to lunch, not ready for prime time, or just otherwise kooky. There's not a lot of other options. And Elizabeth May, for all her faults, 
is still more reasonable and thoughtful um, than many of the other alternatives. I actually think it's quite interesting because I think I've been watching the polls recently, and there is a little bit of an uptick for the Green Party. I mean, the Green Party is doing very well in PEI right now. They're doing very well in New Brunswick, yeah, there's, there's Ontario, there. NBC. Um, there's a lot of room to grow. They need somebody young and dynamic who yeah. actually yeah. can take up that mantle. And yeah. honestly, a little bit of advice for the Green Party. Um, stop running as a German Green Party. Start running as a Swedish Green Party. They're, they're very different kind of trends. You know, the German Greens tend to be a little bit more centrist, kind of center-right on a lot of issues, but ecologists on a bunch of others. The Nordic Greens are like pretty far left. I think there's a whole bunch of room here to eat the NDP's lunch. Yep. And the Green Party is not taking that invitation, and I think they should go for the friggin' jugular. Yep. And I think they would do quite well if they did. I think that, I think that that's exactly right. The other thing I would just say is, you know, the world that we stepped into in 2015 in the last election is very different from the world we're going to be stepping out of into the next election. You know, things got darker, things got very real. And what I think Canadians are generally looking for in their leaders has fundamentally changed. And that should be an opening or an opportunity to a lot of these parties to really consider, reconsider what their message and their branding and their leadership looks like. Absolutely. Wish number four, Jen. This is you're gonna love this one. I think it's time. <laughs> I think it's time we nationalize the internet. Okay. <laughs> Not physically the internet. Uh, you know, I think it's time. <laughs> I think it's time Ottawa step up and, and take control of the telecommunications infrastructure that it helped pay to build. I think it's enough of letting Bell and Rogers and Saskatel and, and one or two others tell us. Stop letting them basically uh, just milk the telecommunications infrastructure of this country for gross, obscene profits, and which leads to the gouging of Canadian taxpayers. I think we isn't that better option to just you know invite more competition into the telecom situation. Like, isn't, well, a lot isn't, of the times you can't, can't really have it, real competition. This monopolizing this into state control exactly the wrong impulse? Isn't that just going to make things worse? Actually, no, it would make things better. You, If the state actually has ownership of the infrastructure and leases it out to new companies, it can actually improve competition. Right now, you basically have an oligopoly on a lot of this infrastructure because mm-hmm. a handful of companies own it. So when you go with a small provider, a lot of the time they're, uh, they have to run everything through Bell or Rogers anyway. It actually mm-hmm. means that there's no real competition. There's a handful of big players who run most of the economy on this front. And honestly, if the Canadian government had more ownership of this infrastructure, it could put money into improving it. It's time that Canada, we're one of the most connected countries in the world. We are a country who spends more time online than most other countries, if not all other countries. Maybe it's time the Canadian government step up and say, we're going to make sure we actually have decent high-speed internet for every rural area in the country. And that is a huge economic boost. We could be one of the world leaders. Yeah, in- yeah there's nothing that says innovation than government control. <laughs> Well done, government control. I'm open to this argument. I'm open to half of this argument. And that is, yes, the current telecom situation is an oligopoly. Canadians are getting utterly gouged thanks to the lack of private sector competition in this in this field. And I, and I think that it is a problem. So I'm open to reform. Here's my problem. I don't trust the Canadian government to run the fucking internet. I just don't. I, I, there's nothing about that that doesn't have me screaming for the goddamn hills. <laughs> Listen. If you want to be great, you got to expropriate. We want these people literally controlling our access to internet at the ISP level. Well, it should be a crown corporation. Oh, it should because be, those you know, are the Minister so of well run, just infamously well run. A bunch here. of them are. Export Development Canada is one of the most efficient uh, economic uh, drivers and uh, investment vehicles in the country. Yeah, we've, we've got a great good. reputation with governments managing utilities in this country. Let's go, let's go down to the province, provincial level or the Hydro One. The Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, BC's uh, auto insurance company, is a huge cash cow for the government. It is fantastically well run. And trust me, the the actual uh, uh, consumers of BC auto insurance love it. It's just one of the most 
favorite. They have lower rates than a lot of uh, purely private. Tell industries. them that. Listen, Jen, you got to nationalize. Look, I, look something. I think no, we don't. We we literally don't have to nationalize <laughs> anything if we don't want to. Look, I'm not necessarily opposed to nationalization of certain industries and companies if the perfect conditions prevail. I just think that when we're talking about living and existing in a knowledge economy, giving any government the control to who has access to the internet, who who potentially could profit by the internet and who has a voice, I mean that's that's live or die stuff. So I mean I, I'm just I'm really uncomfortable. Give me your next wish, Jen. <laughs> I would really like for conservative parties and conservative politicians to be much more, shall I say, cautious in terms of how they are communicating anti-immigrant and xenophobic sentiment. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, too, that is too reasonable. That's putting it mildly. Um, look, I mean, I, I think that there is, there is a heck of a lot of xenophobic, anti-immigrant sentiment swirling around North America right now. It's, and it's getting to a point where it's kind of scary. I mean, I don't know if you've been watching what's happened in Edmonton this weekend. There's yellow vest protests that are getting borderline violent. You know, you've got splinter groups of Soldier of Odin showing up at these protests. You've got, you know, people now putting out QAnon signs. And they're all arguing against sort of the UN compact on migration, which we've seen Sheer tap into by basically insinuating Why? that like the, the, the UN compact on migration was, was some kind of threat to national sovereignty, even though it's a non-binding agreement. So, you know, to me, the, the conservatives are starting to go down this path where they're feeding into this conspiracy theory minded sentiment that is just a poison. Like it is an intellectual disease that is eating away at people's sort of critical faculties. And you know, to some extent, I get that the conservatives have to tap some of the fear and anger and they have to try and find, they have to tell people that they're listening to their concerns and that they're responding to those concerns. But it's such a fine line between that and fueling and legitimizing some of this batshit crazy nonsense. Yeah, and that's the I, problem. It's just, yeah. it's just, a, it's just such a fine line to walk. And I think that in this case, uh, sheer coming out against the UN stuff, uh, for me, it crossed the line. For me, it was just like, no, you're you're not offering a measured, reasonable critique about Canada's immigration policy. You're not just critiquing the way that the Liberal government has failed to respond to asylum seekers by providing adequate resources. Like that's that's within the yeah. realm of what I think is like mainstream politics. Now you're just like feeding into this conspiracy theory that the UN is out to undermine Canadian sovereignty. And and that yeah. to me is like, okay, now you're contributing to the disease now. I can offer uh, you know, a sports metaphor, which hopefully will, will really hit home for all of our conservative listeners. You don't have to swing at every pitch. You know what? Just because it's an issue, just because some people are screaming about it in the US or people are screaming about it in Hungary, just because there's some crazy people like Maxime Bernier who are freaking out about it, Andrew Shear, you don't have to swing at it. You can go, listen, you know, it's a UN treaty. Would we have signed it? Maybe not. Uh, you don't have to scream about it. You don't have to make it a huge issue. You don't have to blow that dog whistle with all your might. You can just leave it alone. Go campaign on something else. Every time you swing at one of these, it means you're losing the opportunity to swing at something much more effective and, you know, less crazy than this fucking compact. I mean, well, the thing that I have is like, and this is where I think the conservatives have backed themselves into a corner is that they've essentially, they have a platform that is so meaningless, right? They have, they have a, yeah. a, a, like, it's, it's so liberal light. It's so absent on any kind of meaningful deviation from liberal policy that essentially all they have left are these kind of symbolic, these symbolic theater issues, right? Yeah, so, uh, but I mean, but I mean, that's fundamentally the problem. The conservatives are being both too conservative and not at all conservative at the same time. They're not actually yeah. holding to any kind of ideological position because they're afraid that those ideological positions won't win. So instead they throw meat 
at the conspiracy wing. Like, I have some sympathy. Like, so, I mean, I was on tw- uh, Facebook the other day, and there was somebody who, has, who I've been friends with on Facebook for many, many years. I mean, just acquaintances. And he started going off about how there was a page in the Trudeau Foundation annual report indicating their support for pedophile. I mean, it's Pizzagate level shit. And I yep. start challenging him on this. I'm just like, where are you getting this? Like, I've downloaded these reports. I, I've been through them. This doesn't, this doesn't even match what is in them. Like, what's your theory here that they're like, that they're expecting pedophiles to go to the Trudeau Foundation to download their annual reports in order to gain secret tacit approval for pedophilia and then they're going to get rid of that page when anybody notes, like, what what the fuck are you talking about? And then he starts going on about QAnon and Pizzagate and blah, 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 blah. I think conspiracy theories are like a kind of intellectual disease. They completely eat away yeah. at your brain's ability to sort through what's real and what's not real. And, and when, Andrew Shear is amplifying them. I, I understand the conservatives are afraid that if they ignore this stuff, that essentially it's going to blow up in their face and mainstream conservatism is just going to get swamped by it. But at the same time, it's just... I really think that this is a dangerous path to walk. Yep. All right, Jen, we have more wishes after the break. Stressing over the perfect gift to get someone can be overwhelming, but you know what everyone needs? Socks. Unless you're one of those creepy people who always wear sandals throughout winter. Why not give the gift of Sock Club? They'll send a pair of socks every month to your loved ones with the option to customize your message every time. That means that in March and in November, they'll think of you and how much you care about them when they get another package. Sock Club features fresh, modern, classic designs and are made in the U.S. Men's, women's, and children's sizes are available, so it's the perfect gift for absolutely everyone. My favorite part about Sock Club is where you have to fight people in a basement. (laughs) (laughs) Look, we don't talk about Sock Club. You do not not talk about Sock Club, Justin. (sighs) Go to SockClub.com slash CandidLand and get 15% off using discount code CandidLand at checkout. That's SockClub.com slash CandidLand. Give a little reminder that you care every month. Give SockClub. All right, Jen, wish number three. This is one that should both piss off and make happy at the same time, conservatives and progressives. So I'm really just trying to play all my bases here. I think it's time both a bunch of laggard provinces and the federal government pay down their fucking deficits. Wow. <laughs> right now, the federal deficit stands at $18.1 billion. Ontario has a $14.5 billion, even with supposedly cost-conscious Doug Ford at the helm. Alberta has a $7.8 billion deficit. And you know what? This is a fucking problem. The economy at some point is going to fucking tank because you know that's what the business cycle does. And debt is not going to be as cheap as it is now. We are going to be in a very dangerous position if these deficits continue to grow and we don't actually make progress in paying them down. And right now, none of those provinces and the federal government seem interested in actually getting back to balance and it's fucking time. Uh, well, weirdly, the two of the best provinces for this right now are the socialists on the left coast and Quebec. The liberal government left Quebec's books in fantastic shape and both provinces right now have surpluses. Well, Justin, all I can say is welcome to the Austrian school. Well, not quite, because also I don't know that spending cuts make a lot of sense right now. We have a lot of green infrastructure to build if we're going to actually get on target to meet our climate change goals. You know, there are a couple of big ideas I like out there that, you know, would actually improve our healthcare system for the long term. I think it's time to start talking seriously, like adults, about new revenue tools. It's time for new taxes, you cost-conscious weirdos. Maybe the HST should not be uh, at 13% in most provinces. 
maybe it's time to add those two points back to the HST. I know this is the third rail of Canadian politics, but it's because none of our politicians are adult enough or think you're smart enough to actually talk to you about raising your taxes in a meaningful way. Even the fucking Trudeau government couldn't raise taxes on the rich without also offsetting them for middle class workers, uh, meaning that the actual impact of those tax increases were basically nullified. It's time the government raised more money and you know how you do that? You raise taxes. Okay, so welcome to one of the main criticisms of Keynesian economics. So it's all fine and good to see the government engage in counter-cyclical spending. So, for example, ramping up spending when the economy starts to tank in order to keep things out of recession and to keep jobs going and keep money flowing through the economy. The problem, and I believe this is the Hayekian... Uh, Hiya! This is the main criticism, is that that spending never ever seems to go down when times get better. And so what you wind up is like this downward spiral of constantly increasing spending and never ever bringing up revenue enough to meet that spending. And once you start giving people entitlements and the benefits of spending, they always seem to want more. They never seem to be willing to, to scale back those entitlements. Uh, yeah, maybe because those entitlements are proven to be effective for the overall economy. But you know, actually, generous welfare programs mean people get back to work sooner. People don't die in the streets. Okay, Kate, literally no one's advocating for dying in the streets. That's a straw man. Also, no one's seriously in Canada, even in conservative economics, is talking about destroying the welfare state. There is no conservative in Canada that wants to, like, completely destroy socialized medicine. So, like, let's get a grip on that. Sure. Secondly... Um, in terms of revenue tools, I think that, you know, you have to take this on a case by case basis. In Alberta, does it make sense to increase, for example, uh, sales taxes in order to mitigate for the lost oil revenue? My argument for this has been no shit, Sherlock. Like, yes, obviously <laughs> it does. Um, you know, in a place like Alberta, we have dramatically lower taxes. And if we were to bring up our taxes to the level of, God forbid, British Columbia, We'd wipe out our deficit in a nanosecond and massively yeah. improve our fiscal position in the long term. Does that make as much sense in a place like Ontario? And now we run into some problems because it's not yep. just it's not just about raising revenue for the sake of raising revenue. You can't press on one side of the lever and not expect another side of the lever to be affected by it. Ontario doesn't exist and Canada doesn't exist in a vacuum. Unfortunately, we're kind of interdependent with the rest of the economies of the countries around us, which means that if we start jacking up taxes for revenue reasons massively above, you know, our roughly competitive jurisdictions, then we start losing jobs, we start losing competitive advantages, we start losing totally all of this sort of stuff. We, we wind up hurting ourselves as much as we're helping ourselves. Yes, potentially we bring up the revenue from an individual, but we wind up potentially losing revenue because we lose jobs. So it's like, there's never ever an easy solution there's never ever a magic bullet. It's never just like, just raise taxes and that fixes all of the problems. Like it, it doesn't work like that. All right, Jen, give me number three. I have a good wish, actually. A good wish. Ooh, oh, good I've got wish. a good wish. Okay, so there's a politician you may have heard of by the name of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I've heard of her. Yeah. Anyway, she's a rookie 28-year-old congresswoman who just got elected. And there was a, a video that she did with uh, Bernie Sanders talking about the Green New Deal that made the rounds on Facebook. And I, I found my black, black neoliberal heart growing in size when I actually listened to this, because she basically said, like, look, we're in a really dark place. And we need to start abandoning fear and the politics of fear and anger and start embracing this sort of more all-encompassing, positive, ambitious project in order to bring people, you know, through whatever crazy authoritarian p 
period that we're entering into. And she sort of frames this around the idea of, of a green new deal. In other words, um, creating a, an economic transition toward um, green energy and sequestering of, of, of carbon emissions and reducing carbon emissions. And I found myself saying that is the kind of rhetoric that I really want to see more of from the left. Now, I'm sure that if I start going through the green new deal as she envisions it, I'm going to find all kinds of things I disagree with. But what I really like is that she's using a rhetoric that's like all encompassing that it's bringing people into the left, it's welcoming people in in a way that that is appealing to the common humanity, and it's it's really taking the lessons of history to heart. It's following on what Roosevelt did as the European powers were falling to fascism and authoritarianism throughout the 30s, and saying, well, look, we have a better way of doing things in America, and that's rather than you know falling for demagoguery and and evil and xenophobia we're going to bring you into this new deal we're going to we're going to bring you into this new american compact and give you a promising and hopeful way forward and i found myself just blown away by it because you know what i'm not hearing that from conservatives and i'm also not hearing that from like the left in canada and i was really quite moved and even if i disagree with certain aspects of what she's proposing i really really want to hear more of that kind of stuff from the left well jen guess what guess what my number 2 wish is oh tell me for a green new deal Oh, okay. All right. Well, there you go. So We're look, we both page. have the same thing on our on our wish list. Santa can bring both of us <laughs> billion dollars in green infrastructure spending. Which is perfect because it follows right on your previous wish about how we're overspending and massively in debt. So we're really well equipped for that. I'm not even convinced that we're overspending. I think as long as we actually have a plan to pay for it, a Green New Deal makes a lot of sense. For years now, both in the Harper era and the Trudeau era, we've spent a fuck ton of infrastructure money on shit that we don't need. We don't necessarily need to have the federal government going into communities in rural Ontario and building new hockey rinks. That is not the federal government's fucking job. We were spending money for the sake of spending money because we thought it would create jobs and lessen the impact of the last recession. Well, also, also the reality we were buying is, votes. Let's be real blunt about that. And too. we were at, absolutely. So you know what? I don't need. Ottawa to come into my community and build a new community center. That's either the city's job or the province's job. What the government's job should be, the federal government's job should be building energy infrastructure, building, you know, trans-provincial, uh, you know, electric grids or, or maybe, <laughs> or in some cases, pipelines. Um, you know, I, I think uh, a Green New Deal makes a lot of sense because it is a national project. Provinces often can't be counted on to do the investment and the building needed to bring the Canadian uh, infrastructure economy into the 21st and eventually the 22nd century. It should be a national project. The federal government brags that it spent a bunch of money on green infrastructure, but it's fucking nothing. In the 2016 budget where they announced a bunch of their infrastructure spending, the Trudeau government spent $5 billion over five years on quote-unquote green energy, and a lot of that was wastewater treatment. That is fucking nothing. It's time we stop spending money on boot take little projects that's going to win local MPs they're riding and start spending money on big projects, hydro, biomass, tidal, you know, smart grids. It's time to get on board with this shit. And if Canada doesn't do it, then a bunch of other countries are going to do it first. And they're going to basically uh, soak up a lot of the investment money. We need to get on board with this right fucking now. And ultimately, I think Andrew Shear could be a great person to advocate for this because there's a way you do this where it's a bunch of P3 projects where you bring in big energy companies to help do some of the heavy lifting here. And that should be a prime way we get to our CO2 targets uh, that doesn't necessarily involve a tax or can be done in conjunction with the carbon tax. And wouldn't that wouldn't that be more a positive message coming from the Conservative Party wouldn't than shitting on like the UN migration pact? Like, wouldn't that be a more interesting way in saying, look, we're going to work with energy companies, we're going to work with private sector, and we're going to try and transform our economy in a positive way that works for more people. Like, I, I that, that addresses the fundamental anger and fear that is driving this populist surge. And I, I think that you're quite right to frame it 
it in a way that it's like, it's not a liberal thing. It's not a conservative thing. There are different ways to approach this problem, but it has to be about bringing people into the the, the circle as opposed to dividing us and excluding us and, and turning us against one another. So I really, I like that idea. What's your number two wish, Jen? Number two wish is that we burn Twitter to the ground. <laughs> Why don't we nationalize it first? Yeah, nationalize it and then burn it to the ground. That's that's the perfect way to burn Twitter to the ground, would be to nationalize it first, as far as I can tell. Look, I mean, I think that Twitter is actually poisoning us. I think it's poisoning me. I think that it is giving us a massively wrong-headed view about how polarized and how divisive politics actually is because it gives voice to the most extreme sides of the political spectrum. And I don't think it's where most people actually live in the real world. So I, I think it's just Twitter and to some extent even Facebook, well, not obviously Facebook as well. I mean, all of these things are having a corrosive effect on our democracy. And I think we all have to fundamentally reestablish our relationship with these with these services and these platforms and recalibrate dramatically. You know, I am here and there on Twitter. I don't use it like I used to. I've muted enough people now that it's actually not such a toxic experience. I'm more concerned about Facebook. Mm. The, the the Trudeau government had talked a really good game about coming in and being the bad cop and being the new sheriff in town when it comes to social media and Facebook and making sure that Facebook stops becoming a platform both for misinformation but also for hysteria. We've seen with the yellow jacket protest in France, Facebook actually became a conduit for really angry you know, protests that turned especially violent. Obviously, those protests writ large are legitimate expressions of frustration and anger. Uh, but in a lot of cases, Facebook appears to have been a petri dish for kind of the most furious, white-hot anger that might not have been all that justified. And it was basically a platform for mob mentality. And that's really fucking bad. And when that happens in Canada, we are going to be kicking ourselves if we didn't do something about it sooner. Jen, my number one wish for 2019 is also kind of a downer. It's time to fix the affordability crisis. Uh, We are not talking enough about what is, for Canadians, the number one issue in politics right now. It's not fucking immigrants. It's not refugees. Mm -hmm. It's not even climate change, kind of unfortunately. It's affordability. People are having a hard time living in their homes and buying groceries and putting their kids through school and paying their private health care insurance. Because shit is getting expensive, especially when it comes to housing. And the federal government has seemed kind of blithely unaware of how big of a problem this is. The federal government, I was actually at the announcement about a year and a half ago, where the federal government announced that they were putting a whole bunch of new money into public housing. And and fundamentally, it's just not enough. It's even regarded inside government as not nearly enough. They're talking about $40 billion over a decade. Yeah, that's 100,000 affordable housing units for what is a national problem for millions of people. It's time the government get in the game of housing again, because honestly, the private industry has shown itself (laughs) wildly unable. The government has been in the housing game for decades, Justin. A lot of the affordability crisis we're facing is a direct result of government policy (laughs) over the housing prices. Now, here's where I would say is that um, one of the major problems of the affordability crisis, firstly, the affordability crisis when it turns to housing is not a pan-national thing. It's a very different conversation in Vancouver and Toronto than it is in Calgary and Halifax. Calgary is still a pretty affordable city. Halifax is still a pretty affordable city. Toronto but and the trend, Vancouver are... the trend are is ha- the, the wrong direction. I mean, yes, that, that's true to like a degree. That's what Vancouver's been facing for the last decade. Is it's, a, it's a housing bubble. It's just a totally unsustainable roundup in housing prices that is totally and utterly detached from the economic fundamentals of the city. And you've seen, right. you've seen similarly a bubble in, in Toronto. 
What's allowed that bubble to continue is that you have had the government subsidize basically shitty, in much the same way that, that this happened in the US, you've had the government subsidize people who are taking on ever greater loans that they couldn't actually afford to pay off. And mm-hmm. that's that's a result of government policy. That So if you want to go back to the beginning and talk about the origins of the CMHC and the way that that housing corporation was created sort of in the post-war era in order to help people get into loans, because they said they went to the private banks and they said, look, we will insure your private mortgages against default with government taxpayer money. So that was all fine and good and worked for a couple of generations while everything was growing hunky-dory. At some point, when especially after 2008, when the rules around mortgages got dramatically lessened in order to get more people into the housing market in order to artificially keep the uh, the whole economy afloat, what happened was you have now a taxpayer-funded insurance policy that de-risks all of these mortgages for um, people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get into the housing market. And that is not indicative to me that we need more public involvement in the housing market. What that's indicative to me is that we need less. What's your number one wish, Jen? My number one wish is that I am going to wish a Merry Christmas to Tankies. Oh, what a cop out. <laughs> oh, but it's so true. Okay, Merry Christmas, look, Merry to, the Christmas to the Tankies. Look, I mean, judging by Twitter, there is at least... 40 people who are tankies who are just avid, avid listeners of Oppo. And I just, <laughs> and they I just really wanted to loved say, the last they show. really, they loved the last show. They were all for it. And firstly, I just wanted to say thank you for your continued and diligent support of our show. We love people from all across the political spectrum listening to our show and commenting on it. It's really fantastic. But Justin, I have to say that Oppo received the best letter to the publisher as a result of the last show that we did. And I feel like it was so amazing that I have to read it on the show. We used to do this in the show where we read out our hate mail and then we were afraid that we were just going to encourage more hate mail. But this one <laughs> was so good, was so amazing that I feel like I really want to, as a Christmas treat, I want to read it out to everybody. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay. <clears throat> a dramatic reading. Episode 18 of Oppo was terrible. Episode 18 of Oppo was the worst podcast I've ever heard. That's something to say considering I subscribed to over 40 podcasts and have been listening to podcasts for four years. The podcast started with the host saying last episode we talked about the far-right Nazis and fascists this week and we will talk about the far-left and unions. This basically compared a member of being a union to being a fascist. Justin Ling was being so incredibly condescending to unions and progressives the entire episode it made me enraged. Also, I used to like Oppo, but they have never been in the same league as Chapo. Uh. (laughs) it's canada guys i think we've had this conversation you need to reset the bar a little bit all right i was seriously considering becoming a patron of canada land and i'm so happy now that i didn't after that episode of oppo just so you know your patreon contributions do not go to oppo anyway i have deleted oppo deleted the imposter and deleted comments i will still listen but here's the best part here's the best part it's just it's the most beautiful sentence in the thing ready I will still listen to Canada Land for the next two months in the hope that either Justin Ling will make a formal apology or will be fired. <sighs> oh, this is so good. Okay, so Justin, here's your opportunity. Would you like to offer a formal apology to our tanky friend over here? Um, no. Well, your days are clearly numbered. Anyway, look. Fire me, I- Jesse, you coward. Uh, Mr. Person whose name I will not reveal because I'm not that cruel. I just wanted to say thank you at the very least for committing to listen diligently for the next two months. And 
All love to all of our tanky friends. We tease, but we tease because we love you. And uh, I wish you all a very happy Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Merry Xmas. That's it for Oppo this year. We'll be back on January 15th. Get in touch. Oh, and we've got lots of really good uh, interviews coming up. You're definitely going to want to listen to it, unless your yep. name is Brian and you're a tanky. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast. Comics is wrapped up for the fall with the story of how Canada's smallest province tried to host all of the country's online gambling, and guess what? It didn't go well. This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is podcasts. Something the Prime Minister apparently doesn't like. What uh, kind of music are you listening to right now? If you have time. Or podcasts. Podcasts? No, I don't. I, I've tried. I, I run regularly, and I've tried to... Uh, uh, tried to do the podcast thing, but it hasn't really. Uh, it doesn't really. Say, I don't like people talking in my ears when I'm trying to run. I like to, like to sort of vibe out.